You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Hello, everybody. Um, I want to very much welcome you to what is now de facto the first talk in our winter and spring series called Talking Gender in the EU. My name is Sabine Lang. I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, and I also direct our Center for West European Studies, which is a Erasmus Plus funded Jamoni Center of Excellence. And I also direct a Center for Russian East European Central Asian Studies, which is wonderful for today's lecture that will bridge uh, many of these hats that uh, I'm wearing. Um, this lecture series here brings together, this is our intention, speakers from a, a wide variety of backgrounds in European social science for a rather loosely threaded conversation about the state of gender equality in the European Union and its member states. The format, um, 30 minutes plus minus uh, of lecture of introduction by Laura on her topic, and then uh, we will get to your questions in the last half hour of, uh, of uh, today's session. As always, um, this forum and uh, what we do at the Jackson School would not be possible without our very dedicated sponsors. I would like to mention the Jackson School and its director, Lila Fernandez. I want to mention the Center for Global Studies, the Russian East European Central Asian Center, also CUS and Jean Monnet for sponsoring this series. And finally, and as always, a very big thanks to our wonderful crew at the center, Managing Director Phil Lyon and our program and outreach coordinators, Jessica Meyerson and Susanna Haley, who have put a lot of work into organizing and advertising and making uh, our events go smoothly. We're very fortunate to have Professor Laura Dean with us today from Millican University in Illinois. Laura is an associate professor of political science and history, and also Williams professor in global studies. And she's actually also one of us. She got her MA at the Jackson School in the RECAS program in 2006, and then her PhD in political science from the University of Kansas in 2014. Her research and teaching cover a wide array of issues from post-Soviet politics to international human rights. And the focus of her recent work has been human trafficking and anti-trafficking policies in the post-Soviet region, particularly in Ukraine, Latvia, and Russia. Her monograph titled Diffusing Human Trafficking Policy in Eurasia was just published in 2020 with Bristol University Press. 
She will take us back to Latvia today uh, with a talk uh, on the Latvian parliament titled Political Ethnography with a Gender Lens in the Latvian Parliament. Please welcome with me Laura Dean and I will turn this over to you now. Thank you for being here, Laura. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, as I get my PowerPoint slide loaded here. Um, so yeah, so I was a student in the Jackson School um, and I came to UW because it was the only uh, university in the country that offered Latvian language skills. And so I think it's really fitting that I, um, you know, have been invited to back to UW, even though it's virtually, um, but really, you know, presenting on research that I gained, you know, with language skills that I gained at the University of Washington, the language skills and the cultural knowledge. So it's really, you know, exciting for me to come back to the one institution in North America that teaches the Latvian language, and I'm happy to, you know, share the skills um, and knowledge that I've gained there. So. Um, so today I'm going to speak about political ethnography with a gender lens in the Latvian parliament, the Saima. Um, so this is a picture of the Latvian parliament. Hopefully you all can see that. Um, so this is the Saima. So it's nestled in the old town of Riga, the capital of Latvia. The building was constructed in 18, from 1863 to 1867 to house the tag of the Livonian Noble Corporation of the Governorate of Livonia during the Russian Empire. The Livonian Noble Corporation was a semi-autonomous fiefdom that administered the area on behalf of the Tsar. The Noble Corporation, also known as the Knighthood, was started at the dissolution of the Teutonic Order in Livonia in the 16th century and comprised of the Baltic German nobility who made up the ruling class of Latvia at this time. Uh, the Lantag was not a democratic body, but was rather um, a group of aristocratic nobles. Um, so it was basically an assembly of nobles. Uh, the building was destroyed by fire in 1921, and then during the reconstruction of the building, um, you can kind of see there's a figure in the distance. Um, so it used to be the figure of the master of the Livonian order, and then it was replaced by the statue of Lachplesis, who is Bear Slayer. Um, it's the mythical Latvian hero, hero from the Latvian epic. So he basically kind of watches over people. Um, you can see at the bottom, that's the main entrance to the Saima building. Uh, in the 1950s, that sculpture was actually torn down. Um, they still don't know who did it. Um, and then in 2007, the sculpture was restored and now overlooks the main entrance to the building. Um, so why do I mention all of this? Um, it's important to know, right, that this basically has been the seat of political power in the country of Latvia um, since the 1800s. It's, you know, gone from you know, German occupation to Soviet occupation back and forth. And now again, um, ever since 1993, it again houses the Saima building. So the Saima is a gendered space. So where basically formal and informal politics, um, rules of politics prevail. So I'm really trying to focus on kind of the nature of politicians and the political world. Um, and this building is at the heart of that. So in the halls of political power in Latvia, there are symbols of real men. So they're real political figures and only mythical women. Um, and these mythical women are portrayed in traditional roles as wives and mothers. So you can see the picture above um, that's known as the guest room in the Latvian Saima. Uh, you know, you can see hopefully a little bit the pictures of uh, mythical women. These are not real women. Um, they're portraying their lives as wives and mothers. 
Um, and then the picture on the bottom comes from the yellow room, and that's a portrait of Giannis Chuckstay, a real person, uh, the president of the People's Council and the Constitutional Assembly, and he was also the first president of Latvia. Um, so when we think about, you know, the seat of political power in um, in Latvia, we look at, you know, the symbols of only mythical women, but then real men. So. Uh, when we're, uh, you know, also thinking about performing gender on a daily basis in political institutions, you know, many, you know, of the people that operate in this space are operate, operating based on political institutions that were, you know, basically designed by men. So until recently, Eastern Europe was one of the worst regions in the world for women's representation. Um, and this is because of the communist legacies around um, in the region, right, that in the promotion of nationalist policies after the fall of communism, and really the full scale rejection of different institutional mechanisms that could increase women's representation um, after the fall. So this region, though, has actually seen an emergence of women, both in the legislative and executive branches. Uh, so Latvia was the first country in Eastern Europe to elect a female head of state in 1999. Um, so 87 countries around the world have either had a female head of state or government, and only 19 have had both. And there is a significant concentration of countries that have had both a female head of state and head of government, um, and that's and five countries in Eastern Europe. So out of 19 countries in the entire world, five countries that have had both are centered in Eastern Europe, um, and one of them is Latvia. Latvia has had both a female head of state and um, a female head of government, which makes it a very unique and interesting place to study, you know, the gender dynamics of Latvia, of the parliament and politics there. Um, so Latvia is the fourth country in the region for women's representation, but it has no institutional mechanisms to ensure gender equality. So kind of leading up to the 2018 election, uh, Latvia was 124th in the world for women's representation. And then in 2018, basically they kind of blew the statistic out of the water. So in one election, Latvia increased women's representation from 18 to 31% without any gender quotas or anything really kind of, you know, enhancing and improving gender equality. So it was really all the Latvian electorate um, and maybe some of the politicians that placed women uh, higher on the list. So, so yeah, so this is kind of the background of, you know, where I'm coming to with this, uh, with this, you know, problem with the issue that I'm studying in Latvia. So Latvia is the highest ranking country in Eastern Europe with no gender quotas um, to increase women's participation. And that's what makes it a really interesting case to study. Um, so I have a picture here again of women in front of the Saima. So that's the president of the first female president of the Republic of Latvia, and deputies from the seventh Saima and former deputies from the Supreme Council. So you can look at, you know, on the surface, Latvia is a great place, you know, for women in politics. It's a very, you know, open country to the concept of women in politics. So my research question looks at the gender dynamics. I wanted to look at how these gender dynamics govern day-to-day -day interactions um, with formal and informal rules in the parliament. I really wanted to, you know, 
uh, use kind of applied research to be able to go in and talk to members of the parliament um, with the overall goal that I wanted to examine if this increase in descriptive representation, right, so this increase from 18% women to 31%, if that actually made a difference for the lives of women in Latvia. So do we see an increase in descriptive representation? Um, so when we see an increase in descriptive representation, does that equal a difference in substantive representation? So just putting women in the SIMA doesn't, might not always, you know, equal uh, more gender equality policies for women. So I wanted to kind of look at this overarching idea of gender dynamics in parliament and see if it makes a difference um, for women in Latvia. So I won't go, since I know this is a public talk, I'm not going to go very deeply into the literature review. Um, but basically, um, Richard Fenno was one of the first uh, people to kind of promote this soaking and poking method of political science. Um, he was arguing that researchers should follow their subjects through the field, observing and documenting their behavior. And recently, feminists um, and gender scholars have really kind of picked up this approach to observing um, a, with ethnography, observing different aspects of political life. So feminist institutionalism calls attention to how gender is not something that women bring to institutional settings, rather institutions are gendering. That is, they, are, they bring gendered actors into being. So, they're, so by you know, having more women in parliament, are we bringing more gender actors into being? Um, I'll let you know the preliminary uh, results of my research in a little bit. So, um, so yeah, and research, previous research, there's a lot of research uh, that suggests that women, members of parliament, MPs are excluded um, during aggressive and competitive debates and um, excluded due to the time consuming political party and constituency work. So I wanted to kind of see, you know, apply these methods in Latvia and see uh, if it was, you know, if we get similar results. So we see women being excluded from political life. Um, as a result of you know, their role in politics. So what is political ethnography? So, um, so I was granted access. Um, I had to write to the Parliament of Latvia to ask them. I'm one of maybe a handful of scholars that have actually gone and done ethnographic research um, observations in the Parliament in the Latvian Saima. So I was there during the winter and spring sessions. I was there last spring. So I was there both before and during the pandemic. Um, I observed 13 regular plenary sittings. That's just regular, you know, meetings every Thursday of the SIMA. I observed 50 extraordinary sessions and then one ceremonial um, sitting. So all of the regular sittings were in person and then all but two of the extraordinary sittings were online. So basically everything was in person until the pandemic hit and the state of emergency hit. And then after that, basically all of the observations were online. Latvia was one of the first uh, governments in the world to have an e-SIMA. So they started, they basically pivoted, as we call things happening in the pandemic today. Um, they pivoted to the online, uh, you know, online uh, versions of the SIMA. So, um, so yeah, and I'll talk kind of a little bit about that. So I took a lot of ethnographic notes and I coded them into different themes. And I'm only going to present four of them today because we only have 30 minutes. I could probably talk about what I found for numerous hours. 
Um, and then I also, so not only did I sit in parliament doing ethnographic research, I also conducted 38 interviews with female members of parliament in the 12th and 13th Saima. So the 12th Saima um, was the previous Saima and then the 13th Saima is the current Saima um, that has been in office since 2018. So um, I conducted 17 of 22 female MPs in the 12th and then 26 of 31. So I have about an 80% response rate, which is really great, I think, considering the pandemic. Um, but it it also kind of shows that Latvia and Latvian politicians, right, are maybe more accessible than we would think of politicians in other countries, especially in the United States, right, because they're willing to meet um, with someone and be interviewed. Many of them were very, very um, interested in the research project that I was doing, very interested to find out the results. Um, so yeah, and I don't know if we would see something similar in the United States. So. So what does ethnography actually look like? All of this is kind of some fancy words to talk about that. That's a picture that I took um, while observing. But then these pictures, so these are official pictures from the Saima. Um, and if you see what I look like here, you will notice that I'm in every single one of these photos um, in the background. And if this was a class, I would always ask my students, what am I doing? Um, in most of them, I'm taking notes, right? And so that's kind of, this is really what ethnography looks like um, in the official Saima photos. So you can see me in the background, um, kind of weirdly taking notes with my guest pass, um, kind of always observing and seeing what is going on. So, um, so yeah, and people kind of began to notice me because I wasn't a journalist. And um, so, yeah, so it was an interesting thing. And it's great that the official Saima website now has photos of me in the back taking notes. So the first thing that you notice when you go into the Saima is the presidium. So in the plenary chamber where debates are um, occur, we can see, so basically there's seats for all 100 members of parliament um, and then seats for the president of Latvia, the prime minister and all of the ministers. So it's in a semicircle shape of an amphitheater um, and it's all directed towards the presidium. So the presidium is one of the first things that you notice. So in the presidium, there's space for the speaker two deputy speakers, uh, the secretary and the deputy secretary. So these are kind of pictures of what the presidium looks like in Latvia. So the speaker of the Saima is in Aramunietse. So, and nearly all, so the speaker is in the middle there. Um, she has white blondish hair. Um, you can kind of see her in the middle of both of these photos. And you also notice that nearly all of the presidium members are women. So I think from the outset, when you enter the parliament, you think, wow, you know, the Latvian parliament is a place for women. We see all the people in the main areas um, of power and the main areas of politics are women. Um, so the presidium determines the internal procedure and work of the Saima. It gives opinions and forwards uh, different, you know, rules of procedure. It compiles the, and it compiles the agenda for the Saima. But unfortunately, the presidium has little actual power and the members actually rarely speak in parliament other than to rule on proceedings. So this is important because when I talked to people about women's political power in Latvia, uh, they pointed to the presidium and said, well, look, you can see there are women in parliament, right? They're very visible. But I think when you look closer at the halls of power and look at political power in Latvia, um, political power in Latvia for women really still remains elusive. Okay, so one thing you notice in parliament is there's lots of speeches, um, so many speeches, many, many hours of talking. Um, so, but one thing I noticed while sitting there is I noticed that women 
didn't speak as often as male MPs. Um, and so I wanted to be able to kind of back this up and support this with data. Um, so, so I counted every single speech given by every single member of parliament. Um, clearly the speaker who's ruling, you know, on rules, she's the one that introduces every single speaker. So clearly she speaks more than any member of parliament, but um, these are mostly rulings on debate. She actually only gave eight speeches in the 12th SIMA, and she's only given three in the 13th. So that means since 2018, she's given three speeches, right? So again, like when we're thinking about political power in Latvia, um, the people that we would maybe look to and think that have power, you know, don't actually speak in parliament that often. So overall women speak less. So in the 12th SIMA, female MPs gave 626 speeches while men gave 3,223. So women spoke about 16%, um, gave about 16% of the SIMA speeches, right? Which actually isn't that great. Um, it's a, it's a little bit lower than the number of women in parliament. Um, and then we see actually an improvement in the 13th SIMA. Female MPs um, gave 2,574 speeches, um, while men gave 4,839. And this is actually 35% of speeches. Um, and so if we think about 31% of the MPs being women and they gave 35% of their speeches, that's actually a significant improvement towards the 16% that we saw in the 12th SIMA. So, more women is making a difference in the number of speeches that we see in the Latvian parliament. So um, I also, one thing I noticed while sitting in parliament is that women were interrupted a lot. So I think there's been a lot of talk recently, um, you know, especially in the United States with the previous presidential debate um, of, you know, women getting interrupted many times by men, right? And so um, kind of with that, you know, error, I was noticing um, in Latvia that that happened too. So I'm actually in the process of counting every single interruption in, in different topics, thankfully not every speech. Um, but I found that it depends on the topic of discussion, but I looked at all the educational speeches um, in the 12th SIMA and basically women were interrupted 99% of the time. So in almost every single speech, a woman was interrupted um, versus men um, for education were about 81%. Um, talking about security services, so security and defense, uh, women were interrupted 66% of the time while men were interrupted 41%. Um, and then I looked at budget debates, which anyone that follows any sort of politics knows budget debates are probably the most controversial. Um, women were interrupted 37% of the time. And then we actually see men in budget debates being interrupted 107%. So they're basically interrupted in numerous times in speeches. Um, I'm still analyzing the data, um, looking at the 13th, but um, I thought that this was something interesting that I observed while in the SIMA and that I'm actually trying to, you know, look at the data to kind of back that up. I wanted to give you an example of what um, an interruption looks like. So I'm going to show you a video. It's in Latvian. So if you speak Latvian, I guess, listen up. If you don't, I translated the interruption. Um, I translated what the speakers are saying, but I want you to kind of look at the body language of the people in this video. It's a video, it's a cell phone video of a cam of the proceedings online. So it's not the best quality, but I think you can still kind of understand. And even if you don't speak Latvian, you can still understand kind of the tone um, of the speech and look at the interruptions. These are the type of interruptions that happen um, in the SIMA. So hopefully the video will play here. 
and then look at the body language of the people um, that are speaking. So I should say the woman um, in black with the blonde hair, that's the speaker of the parliament um, in Naurumurniatse, and then uh, the person that's speaking is Aldous Gobzem. So um, if you know anything about Latvian politics, he's a pretty prevalent uh, person in the Latvian political scene at this time. So let me make sure, hopefully you'll be able to hear this and I'll just play this. It's about a 20 second video. Okay, so if you speak Latvian, you might be think that that was interesting. Um, but basically, the speaker is asking him, um, the member of parliament, Gobzems, to speak on the specific proposal. He's kind of gone off topic, and it's her job to bring him back um, to talk about the, you know, Article 12 of this is actually a budget speech that they're talking about. So she's trying to bring him to talk, bring him back to talk about that. And basically, he says to her, I know that you like bad boys, but be careful, right? So like that's maybe not the way you would address the you know speaker of your parliament um then she goes on to you know talk about what he should be talking about like please focus on that and then he tells her to be careful right so we're seeing kind of you know veiled threats um there's laughter in the background um so people are laughing about it he said it's easy to fall in love with me but hard to forget be careful um and then she says Please, you know, be so kind as to talk about this particular proposal. Um, and then at the end, we see the deputy speaker, Ines Libinia Egnere. Um, she kind of, you know, goes like this and basically indicating that, you know, he's not really paying attention to what's going on. Um, he, you know, is kind of ignoring all rules to say and point to what he should be, you know, focusing on. So kind of that he doesn't, you know, really care about the rules of parliament. But I think, um, yeah, so I think that this is a pretty interesting example of the gendered language of the parliament kind of looking at a very like strong you know kind of you know harassment of the uh you know head of the parliament um who is a female you wonder how he would treat a uh, treat a speaker if that speaker was a man. Um, so it's interesting. And these are dynamics that I observed over and over again, right? So this is just one example. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm working on a paper now that's actually counting the different interruptions. And it happens a lot. And many of these instances are like this. So whoops, I don't want to play it again. Let me make sure I can. Okay, there we go. Okay, so the Saima leadership. So now moving on. So one thing I also noticed is that there weren't actually a lot of women in the Saima leadership. Um, so only three women held a political party leadership position during the 12th Saima. And then we see four women holding a party leadership position in the 13th. And the interesting thing about that is basically out of those four women, three were in the same party and two were for the same position. So a woman replaced a woman um, as another, as a party leader. So that means that basically two political parties have women in their leadership and the other five remaining political parties had no women Women in their leadership, um, which again, like shows us that the, you know, positions of power, the, you know, the leadership of the Saima, the leadership of the political party are the ones that really set the agenda. They, you know, are the ones that decide what bills are going to be sent to committee. There's the ones that are writing the bills. And so when we think about, you know, political power and where it rests, it does not rest with women. So um, you can see, so this is one, um, 
uh, Simon Faction leader from the New Conservative Party, Yuta Stirice. Um, she actually sadly passed away when I was in Latvia, um, but she was the only woman. So you can see her hand is being held up. She's holding a green um, card. So that means that she's basically signaling to the rest of the New Conservative Party that you should vote yes for this. If she holds a red card, um, you're voting no. But she was the only you know, woman who was a leader of a Simon Faction the entire time when I was in Parliament. So it was really sad when she passed away because basically she she, you know, was replaced by a man, and then we only saw signaling being done by men. But I always thought that that was like a really strong kind of showing of a gender dynamic, how like one of basically seven party leaders um, was a woman. Um, but yeah, she, and she sat in the front row, right, kind of signaling how her party should, should vote. And to me, you know, that's a great example of gender leadership. So... Um, so committee leaderships are not, we're not really much better. I'm with 14 leadership positions. So this is basically in the different parliamentary committees. Um, we only see 14 women in leadership positions out of 64 leadership positions. Um, so that constitutes 22% um, of the leadership position. So again, that's below the 31%. Um, so if we wanted parity, if we wanted parity, it would be 50%. But if we wanted something similar to the number of women in parliament, it should be closer to 30%. Um, and then we see two of the 14 ministers um, are women. This is down from four in 2018. So, um, so thus the real political power in Latvia lies mostly in the hands of men. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, you know, we don't have great gender equality here in America, things like that. Um, Estonia and Lithuania, right, the countries to the north and south of Latvia, have almost gender parity within their ministries. So Latvia, two out of four, um, I think leaves a lot, two out of 14, sorry, kind of leaves a lot to be desired, um, it, you know, with political power. So, so, so yeah, so looking at gender dynamics, so, um, one thing I also noticed sitting in the Saima is that um, basically every single morning, five minutes before the opening sitting, um, members are summoned to the plenary chamber with the sounding of the bell. So they sound a bell and that tells the members of parliament that they have five minutes to kind of get to their seat. So at this point, we would see a lot of male politicians going around shaking each other's hands, greeting people for the day, you know, asking people how they were doing. Um, and I noticed that the male MPs didn't shake female MPs hands. So many of them, some of them did. Um, but many of them. And so I was like, that's in interesting, perplexing. Um, so I kind of began to notice this. I asked some of the people um, that I interviewed and many of them said that it was actually a form of like casual sexism um, that would attempt to send message to female MPs that they do not belong there, right? So by going around and greeting all the men, kind of skipping over all the women MPs, right? It's kind of, it's a microaggression that is sending a clear message to women in parliament that they don't belong. Um, and this handshake was kind of thing was kind of interesting um, with COVID right now we don't think about shaking people's hands at all. Um, but basically, so I was in Latvia until July, um, the COVID situation in Latvia didn't get bad until um, later in the year. And so I would go to meet people and I didn't want to shake their hands, um, you know, and so then I had a woman MP say to me like, Oh, are you just being sexist? Do you not want to shake my hands? And I said, No, no, it's because of the spread of germs. Like, 
like, I don't want to shake your hand because of that. Right. So it was interesting how I had to kind of negotiate that I wasn't being sexist by not shaking their hands. I was just trying not to spread the virus by doing that. So, and then, yeah, people still shook hands even after the, the um, COVID started, which, yeah. Anyway, so that's an interesting situation. You can always ask me about that in the Q&A. So. Um, so one thing after, you know, speaking with Latvian members of parliament, um, they told me that they, you know, so we see women aren't giving speeches as often, they're interrupted, they're not being placed in, you know, areas of power. And so I asked women, like, you know, do you, do you cooperate with other women across party lines? How do you advocate for the issues that you want? Um, and several MPs told me that they uh, met in the cafeteria over lunch um, and kind of had more informal advocacy work. So I think a lot of times we see many female MPs kind of working behind the scenes um, to be able to advocate for the positions that matter to them, not so much, you know, on the podium, but they would do work behind the scenes over lunch and things like that. So, um, and then kind of one of the last things I'll focus on. So uh, when the pandemic hit, right, Latvia pivoted to the online SIMA. So the bottom um, picture is how, um, is how we saw, we saw basically every single faction, so every single political party was put in their own room um, within the parliamentary within the parliament building, right? And so this is an example of a room. So you see the camera at the beginning, and if you notice, there's basically no women, and there are women in this political party. This is the National Alliance, right? But we can kind of see in these pictures that women were rendered invisible due to their seating position and parties, um, you know, sitting order. So they put them in order usually of how long they've served in the SIMA, right? Or if it's SIMA leadership, but you can kind of see like the message that this is sending to people when you go online to view the SIMA, you can see basically almost all men are um, at the front of these rooms and are the ones that are speaking. So my conclusion, so Latvia doesn't have any electoral laws or constitutional requirements that increase gender equality in politics. Um, so I, you know, showed you that Latvia does have, you know, women in visible positions, but I would say that they have minimal uh, political power. Um, we can also see an erosion. So, you know, how I spoke about the 31 uh, women. So basically since October, that 31 has been dwindled down to 27 with replacements. Um, you know, people left the SIMA, other people usually, so when someone leaves, they'll take the person next on the list. Um, so we can see, you know, the level of women have actually, has actually gone down over the past four months. Um, so this kind of can tell us about the short-lived impact of the milestone. So this milestone of 31% women is a great milestone, but it can be diminished significantly, um, perhaps in the next election, especially with no constitutional requirements in place to increase gender equality. Um, so despite making headway in the spheres of gender equality in politics and scoring well on many uh, gender equality indices, so Latvia does really, really well um, on lots of gender indices, uh, right? I think that more progress um, for gender equality within the Latvian parliament is still necessary. So that is all that are, that's all uh, my uh, speech today. So yeah, I would welcome any questions that you have, um, uh, you know, on my talk, any, any thoughts on, for those of you that have been to the SIMA, any thoughts or interesting observations, maybe you had similar observations as I did. Thank you so much, Laura. This was really instructive, the, the, the video in particular. Um, with uh, you know such a strong notion of uh, not just a posture but also a uh, 
a um, question of what do you confront the speaker with, what kind of personalized and, and sexist language. Um, let me start our conversation off by going a little bit backwards. Uh, you mentioned uh, somewhere in the talk that uh, part of low representation might be related to the post-Soviet legacy, uh, post-communist legacy and the, the, the um, uh, you know, rather un unequal, different but unequal uh, gender uh, matrix there. Um, so if I compare that um, to, for example, what I know a little bit more about Germany and uh, their post-Soviet, East Germany's post-Soviet legacy, then there were, uh, after the wall fell, definitely there were a lot of movements and a lot of initiatives to get women into the political system, into political institutions, into parties and on party lists and so on. So what did you see post 1990, let's say, in Latvia? So, I mean, so Latvia, similar to other, you know, communist countries did have that 30% quota, um, but, you know, sometimes it wasn't really listened to. Um, and a lot of times, you know, basically they put women in you know, those places and the women, you know, didn't do anything. It was an authoritarian regime. So then afterwards, you know, women were part of the independence movement. You know, there were women out. The Baltic Way is a big, um, a big movement, you know, a big event for the Baltic states where basically they did kind of hands across the Baltics, right? Women participated heavily in that. Um, but unfortunately, when it came to kind of negotiating the government, uh, there, you know, gender quotas were rejected. They've been debated numerous times in parliament, you know, over across the board rejected because of this links to the communist legacy. Um, they wanted, you know, women to earn their place, um, quote unquote. Um, and so I think that's why in most of the post-Soviet countries, we've seen such like, you know, a very, very small incremental um, increases. And again, like until the 2018 election, and I, you know, as a political scientist, I predicted incorrectly that they would not see a large increase, but then we saw a huge increase. And it really has to do with like, the pluses and minuses and how they more many of the Latvian voters put more women in places than men. Um, but yeah, but it's an interesting so we don't really see those gender equality mechanisms that you probably saw in East Germany and maybe other places. They've been systematically rejected in Latvia. Um, all of the debates on gender quotas have been yeah shot down, you know, many of them have gotten to the second and third reading, but it's not something that's really been heavily considered. Um, even in Latvia, we don't see so in Lithuania they have gender quotas in one of the political parties and we don't really see that in Latvia there was one party progressive that did like the zipper method so they put every other um, but even you know we don't see the people taking really upon the the political parties kind of taking it upon themselves to do that there was Yaunais likes did uh, like 40 percent I believe it was gender quota but many times they do it and then they don't win seats and then they kind of abandon it so we don't see this systematic um, you know including of women, I think, like we've seen with like the Social Democrats in Germany, I'm pretty sure most of the parties in Germany have these gender quotas. That just doesn't happen in Latvia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I have a question here about the grassroots aspect of advocacy and involvement. Uh, Janine Mitchell asks uh, if there have been any grassroots efforts 
uh, to advocate for women's involvement in the public sphere um, or gender equality altogether. So do you see activism, not institutionally, but non-institutionally? Yeah, so I mean, I would say probably not as much within the political parties. In fact, when you look at like, you know, what the political parties, their emphasis and the party manifestos, when you look at what they are really, you know, working towards, there's not a lot of, you know, gender equality. There is much more of a focus on women's roles as wives and mothers than there is at, you know, getting women into politics. Um, but grassroots wise, there's an excellent organization called MARTA Center. Um, it's a resource center for women. Um, and it's basically at one point it was the only you know NGO that advocated or non-governmental organization that advocated for women in politics um, and so yeah so there definitely is a grassroots effort but it's difficult when it's one organization you know working for it in the 2018 election they did um, you know panels with women in politics they actually went around the country and did different listening sessions which again like we can attribute maybe the increase in 2018 to some of those grassroots efforts and that people actually saw and maybe for the first time heard from you know female MPs um, and heard their positions and things like that so, um, so yeah, so the grassroots is really falling on kind of one organization. There are a few others that work on issues, but they're basically the only one kind of leading the way. Um, I think we need to see it within political parties, honestly. So we need political parties. And we saw, so in, there was a, the Riga um, city election, um, we saw um, Atisi Pod. it's like four basically, <laughs> um, party. They actually did institute, um, you know, I believe it was a 40% gender quota. They had a lot of women on their list, but that is rare in Latvian government. So I think we need, you know, or Latvia needs, you know, more women in political parties and more women advocating for positions of power. Because even if you have, you know, 50% women on the list, if they're far down the list, they're never going to make it into or it's rare that they'll make it into politics. And what I'm, you know, afraid of is that we'll we see this 2018 advance, and then we'll go back to the 18 or 19 percent that we saw. So, so yeah. So we do see grassroots. We there's an excellent NGO in Latvia that advocates for gender equality. They made T-shirts. I think it was back in like 2007, 2008 that said like "Vote for Women," right? Um, but yeah, and so so yeah. So political parties and then voters too to kind of see you know women in Latvia as viable political candidates, despite the fact that there's been a female prime minister and president, I think that female candidates sadly aren't taken as seriously as male candidates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and and, and uh, working off of this, um, what we also see in many European countries is a left-right cleavage in traditional terms, you know, so we have center-left, social democratic, um, but also in part green and, and left parties supporting measures to get more women into public office. And then we have on the right kind of a reluctant contagion effect sometimes that they see in order to be attractive for electorates, for women electorates, they need to find ways to engage them within the party. Um, but of course, then also lately, uh, the populist movements and their across the board, um, rather anti-gender oriented um, messaging. Is, is there any of this left-right cleavage in uh, Latvia? And then if you could say a few words about populism, our colleague Joyce Mushaben from Georgetown is asking this here. <laughs> 
So in Latvia, so they do have the left-right cleavage in Latvia, but I would say the most prevalent political cleavage is actually by language. Um, so we see the Russian-speaking minority vote for Russian-speaking minority parties, and we see the Latvian majority kind of being split in different parties. So unlike you know many countries where we see this right-left divide and we might see women coming together, we actually see women being split in the Latvia case between this linguistic divide. So we see Russian women, Russian-speaking women, it's not just Russian women, we have Belarusian, Ukrainian, all sorts of uh, different nationalities that vote for the Russian speaking parties. Um, and then we see, you know, the Latvian speaking women will vote for the, you know, Latvian parties dependent, you know, from nationalists to, you know, progressive, very liberal parties. Um, so yes, yeah, so I would say the political divide in Latvia is kind of different. We do see that left right divide, but it's much more um, like, it, you know, before the election, I would ask a Latvian who they wanted to vote for. And, and it was all always based on linguistic differences, right? And I would ask Russian speakers, you know, who are you going to vote for based on linguistic differences? Um, so about populism, so the gentleman in the video, Aldous Globzams, is a populist candidate. So you can kind of see the treatment of these populist candidates, right, um, to, you know, entrench, like, Inaru Murnietze is a very well-respected uh, speaker of the parliament. So you can kind of see that's how the populist movement, it is prevalent in Latvia. Um, we'll see in the next election if they win as many seats, because a lot of times he uses many scare tactics, right? He clearly makes a lot of sexist comments. He speaks more than anyone in the parliament, too. So we're always hearing from him, um, which, again, like can kind of show you why like the media really focus on what he says, because what he says is outrageous. But when it comes down to voting and political power, he probably doesn't have as much as the, the more established political parties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, a couple of questions that I see here on the on the screen uh, go back to your um, research setup and, and uh, ask how you managed with a, you know, gender equality oriented frame to get access to parliament, how this might have influenced how people saw you in parliament. And then there's one question that asks, um, are you bringing this back to the SEMA? So do you plan on um, showing this video at some point, I guess, and or or results of your study more broadly. Um, yeah, I mean, I would love you know, if if I eventually write a book on this. Definitely, I would love to have it translated into Latvian and brought um, back. Many of the women, you know, that I interviewed were were thankful. Like it's interesting too. So I brought, I taught at the University of Latvia. And so I brought, I taught a class on gender and politics, which was the first class on gender and politics ever taught in the country of Latvia. Um, so I brought students with me from the class. So students actually picked a MP in parliament and then they were the ones that were in charge of, you know, kind of getting access and emailing them. Um, so I brought students with me and it was interesting because even the most, you know, students were like, oh, this doesn't matter. They're never going to write us back. They don't want to talk to us. You know, we would go on the interviews and the female MPs would be like, oh, thank you so much for doing this research. It's so interesting. Like, I can't wait to hear about your results. So, um, so yeah, so it was, it, it was great to see students who kind of maybe took gender and politics because they thought it was going to be an easy class, you know, go on these interviews and really kind of change their tune um, and see the importance of the research that they, we were doing, right? For them, it was maybe just a class assignment, but then at the end of the day, they really saw that, you know, this research does matter. 
Um, so yeah, so I think the students helped me. So sadly, you know, the semester ended and I couldn't use the student labor for free anymore. Um, so then I did the inter interviews on my own. Um, so there's only about 2 million speakers of Latvian in the world, right? And as I said, UW is the only place to study Latvian. So it's very rare that foreigners, I think, go in and speak the language. So I'm not ethnically Latvian at all. Um, I learned it at the University of Washington, right? And so that's always an interesting question. So whenever I met with people, they were like, oh, how did you learn this language? That's so interesting, because I think it's not very often that foreigners and outsiders speak the language. And so when I would email people, I emailed them, you know, in Latvian, um, spoke to them, did the interviews in Latvian. So I think that that really, you know, if I would have gone in with English, it might have been more difficult to get people to write me back. Um, but yeah, the Latvian, like I always tell people, Latvian has opened up so many doors for me in my life. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do this research without those language skills that were completely, you know, vital to the research that I did. It also kind of allows me to balance that, you know, am I, am I part of the group? Am I an insider or an outsider? Because I'm really an outsider, you know, as an American, but the language skills kind of allow me to negotiate the insider status. And then the fact that I've been going to Latvia for 20 years, I think, and know a lot about the history um, and politics and things like that also kind of gives me an insider status. So I'm kind of negotiating the insider outsider. So, um, and it's interesting, you know, like almost every MP asked me, oh, where did you study Latvian? And so I'd be like at the University of Washington. And it's funny because the Ministry of Education, right, helps support the Latvian lecture. And so many of them knew um, at, at the University of Washington. So many of them had heard of the University of Washington, right? And we're like, oh, yes, I remember that being on an education bill, right? And so then it kind of also shows that, you know, the money that the Latvian government is giving to support those lectures is kind of coming back in, you know, me and students, other students and faculty like me that are using our language skills to be able to do that research. That's a really nice uh, circle here that you're describing for us that uh, we hope our policymakers, you know, everybody who is in the language business knows that this is really the key to getting our research on the ground. It is having um, firsthand knowledge of intimate settings, conversations that we can only tackle if we know the language a little bit. So thanks for making that blog for us, Laura. Um, a couple of people um, want you to comment on the fact that the Baltics are on the Baltic Sea, with they're within a horizon of the Scandinavian countries with a very strong tradition of gender equality. And we all know that there are lots of relationships, interactions. Um, and the question I guess is to what degree has that influence of Scandinavia left a mark, some sort of mark in the Baltic states or Latvia specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think clearly, you know, the Scandinavian countries were really like the first to be able to invest in the Baltic states. So there is definitely there that connection. Um, Marta Center, the organization that I mentioned was actually started by Swedish feminists in Finland. So in Finland, there's a Swedish minority. Anyway, so Martha is like a big NGO there and they actually facilitated the start of Marta. Um, so we can see the, you know, Scandinavian roots kind of starting with the most progressive women's organization in the country. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely there, but that's the thing, like, so Latvia has been talking a lot about LGBT and intimate partnership laws and things like that. And so I think the Scandinavian influence is there, but 
the Baltics, or at least Latvia is not there yet, especially when we're looking at like LGBT um, issues. And so, yeah, so while it's there, I don't think that, you know, if the, Bal if the Baltic states were truly Scandinavian, we would be seeing, you know, gender quotas, we would be seeing, you know, a great you know, social welfare state, we would be seeing, you know, excellent policies, you know, uh, inclusive uh, things for minorities, inclusive things for the LGBT population. So, um, so yeah, I mean, definitely the Scandinavian connection is there, but um, the Baltic states to me are not Scandinavia. We still see the influence of that communist legacy. And I'm not saying that they can't get there. They definitely can. They've come very far, right? You know, since 1991, they've done great things. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put them in the Scandinavian area, area yet, but we'll see. I mean, because the Baltics, as I spoke about, like Estonia, Lithuania, all three of them have now had, you know, female prime ministers and presidents. And that's pretty amazing. So I think it's kind of an up and coming region and a really interesting place to look at the gender dynamics in parliament. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe just a quick follow up that a couple of people were also voicing, which concerns the EU then as another big factor of influence. Uh, you mentioned the EIGE um, uh, index, the European index of gender equality, where Latvia actually does better, I think, overall than Estonia and Lithuania, at least in the power dimension, but still all three of them are, are relatively low among EU member states. So what is, is the EU and is that gender equality framework actually present within debates in parliament as you found it or not so much? I mean, I would say it is, but interestingly about those rankings, so we'll see because the, you know, the, there have been changes in Estonia and Lithuania. So I'm actually thinking that those two countries will be ahead of Latvia in the next index with political power because they've, in the past year, they've done so much. Um, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say the EU framework is there, but it's only there with like certain political parties and with certain members of parliament, right, that really talk about this idea of gender equality. The concept of gender and the word gender is very controversial. Um, so especially when we're talking about the Istanbul Convention, right? So that you know, Latvia is one of the countries that signed but has not ratified it. Um, and it all comes down to this word, word gender and the approach to, you know, LGBT individuals in that country. Um, so yeah, so I definitely think the EU framework has an influence on that. But unfortunately, um, maybe not enough. We need, and they've done, there's been a lot of improvement, especially especially during the pandemic on violence against women, because violence against women, you know, in Eastern Europe, in the Baltic states is a huge issue. About 35% of women in Latvia, you know, have experienced some sort of violence during their lifetime, which is high. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think definitely in areas of violence against women, we can see those improvements and kind of the pressure from the EU, but maybe in others, like I don't necessarily think that that huge increase to 31% had anything to do with the European Union. It had to do with how people voted and their preferences for political parties in my in my opinion so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's yeah, good yeah. but we can do better so okay okay um so you just touched on violent violence against women as one policy issue some other people are asking uh and this goes back to the beginning of your talk where you uh, kind of opened up the theoretical axis of descriptive and substantive representation does a higher number of women really translate into more gender-friendly, women-friendly policies. Um, so 
are there other policy areas that you've observed during your fieldwork where you say, where you would argue for now, having women in the SEMA made a difference? Or would you say not possible to articulate at this point? Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm still kind of analyzing the output of the laws to see if we to see if there is a difference. Um, I mean, you know, over the course, we can see that women speak more, right? So that definitely makes a difference. Um, so, you know, just having, you know, a presence of women and having a critical mass of women means that other women feel, you know, welcome to be able to speak in a parliamentary debate situation, you know, which isn't always the case. Um, but yeah, I think the, the jury's still out. We still have, you know, two, well, a year-ish left. So 2022 is the next election. Um, so we'll kind of, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if we can, you know, see, you know, more gender equal policies. Um, do I think Latvia is going to get gender quotas before that? Probably not, but we'll see. Who knows? Um, I would say that there's definitely, we see a more discussion of gender. We see a more inclusive language, I think, in many of the parliamentary debates but yeah as for the outcomes of like do we actually see differences like the jury's still out I need I need a few more years to, to analyze all of the um all of the you know uh, laws that have been adopted and see um and education it's interesting education is kind of a controversial topic in Latvia we can definitely see more progressive um policies as a result of that but basically that's the only area that I've looked at as of now so my research is still evolving <laughs> Mm -hmm. What about childcare or the pandemic reactions now? I mean, so last week, two weeks ago, they just adopted a 500 euro um, child benefit. So I mean, yeah, that's, but again, like it took them until March, it took them almost a year to adopt that benefit. Um, so yeah, so I mean, definitely like with childcare, we can see that child, you know, childcare was one of the first um, things to be opened when, so things closed down, you know, March, April-ish, and then May, June, we saw childcare be one of the first things to be opened. And it was like the, you know, zero to five range. Um, so yeah, so there's definitely an emphasis on that. Latvia does put a lot in child policies because similar to the rest of Europe, they have a negative birth rate. Um, so they really do care, I think, about, you know, the health of children and things like that. But again, like many of it's based on, you know, this idea of like, you know, maternal issues and things like that. So yeah, so I think there, we can see benefits with childcare um, as a result of the pandemic. But again, like it's not even close to what they've done in other West European countries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. So we're almost running out of time here. This goes by too fast, really fast. So one more question that a couple of people are asking about is, uh, is about Baltic alliances. So did you see among members of parliament any attempt to foster cross Baltic women's groups, um, you know, advocacy networks, um, institutional parliamentary groups, or uh, is that not happening? I mean, yeah, that's a really good question. I would say that they definitely, so like the Baltic states have healthy competition, right? So when Lithuania got almost, you know, gender parity within their, the um, new prime minister with their, within the ministry, so almost all of the cabinet of ministers was gender equal. Um, people definitely talked about that in Latvian society. So I say that I would think that there is definitely healthy competition. Um, 
I mean, as for, yeah, I mean, again, like the European Institute for Gender Equality that's housed in Lithuania, right, kind of, you know, allows that, allows advocates and people to be able to, you know, foster that type of cooperation. Um, many times in the Baltic states, you know, it's been Latvia trying to work with Sweden or Estonia trying to work with Finland, right? They kind of go it alone. Um, but I think the Baltic Assembly, which is kind of the assembly between the Baltic states and different types of like European institutions have really helped with that alliance. Um, foreign affairs, I mean, they're always together because they've realized that like they're, you know, they have more power together than they do apart. But I would say kind of social issues and gender issues. Um, I don't see it as much. But again, like I really focus on the national aspect. So I haven't really focused too much on the cross Baltic cooperation. So it could be there. And it's just something I haven't focused on. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, uh, Laura, for sharing this, these insights with us, um, for doing this kind of field work that, as you well know, in political science is, is not the norm anymore. So all the more kudos to you. Uh, and we look forward to reading the book or reading an article on the field work rather sooner than later. Thank you very much, Laura. And I hope you'll be back at UW once we can shake hands again, for example. All best, have a good day.